The Large Nerdron Collider podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Nerdron Collider podcast, the podcast that's all about the geeky things happening in the world around us and how excited we are about them. I'm Ariel Kasten, and with me, as always, is Geek Boy Jonathan Strickland. I'm a geek boy. Hey, Ariel, I got a question <laughs> for you. All right, Ariel, you got all the materials, all the skills at your disposal, all the time you need to make your dream cosplay. We both have been to Dragon Con many times. Cosplay is a huge part of Dragon Con. What is your dream cosplay? So this is this is difficult because I have many of them. Um, but the one that I have yet to see anybody do, so I'm picking this because like I could say I want to be a realistic Little Mermaid or I want to be Jessica Rabbit. Those have always been like, high on my list of things to play or Femme Shep from Mass Effect. But the one that I have yet to see anybody do that I would love to love to do is a really well is a female version of the tick. Oh, you know what? I don't think I've seen anyone ever play a female version of the tick either. That is an interesting choice. But you know, since cosplayers like to role play their characters, oftentimes I just think it would be an awful lot of fun. I can very much relate to, to the Tick's non sequitur sometimes. We would have to see if our, our mutual friend Sasha would be your Arthur. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, because you and Sasha, whenever you're paired Sasha together. To <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been a while. It has been a while, but. Um, and Sasha has gone on to. Get to, back to conventions. Yeah, and Sasha's gone on to do some, like, phenomenal cosplays. Sasha's just. If you've ever seen that picture by picture of Tinkerbell next to Thorin Oakenshield and it says this is the same person, that's our friend Sasha, whom we've known for years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would love to do that with Sasha, but I don't have the skills to actually build that costume, nor all the resources in the world to do so. What would be yours? Uh, I gave this a lot of thought and, you know, because I like playing bad guys because, you know, I'm not a bad guy, so it's fun to kind of just play pretend. I think I would go uber bad guy. I want a really cool Witch King ring wraith costume from Lord of the Rings. Oh, that would be neat. Yeah. That would be neat. It would. That's uh, so before we started recording, uh, actually, just to peek behind the veil, I, I gave Ariel a bit of a heads up on this one because I felt like this particular question is one of those where you kind of want to think about it. You know, you just get Mm -hmm. you get that one dropped on your lap and your chances are you're going to give an answer. And then like 20 minutes later, you're going to say, oh, I I hate that answer. So I wanted to give her a little time. And I said, yeah, this is one of those costumes that if I were wearing it at Dragon Con, if I did have the ability to put it all together, I would probably be stationary because I don't think I would be able to see very well in a Witch King outfit. And um, I'd be worried about walking into people or falling down an escalator. Worse yet, falling down an yeah. up escalator, which means you're just falling forever. It's, oh, that would be horrible. Yeah. Horrible. <laughs> I, and, you know, I, I honestly, I changed my mind like three times between the time you gave me time to think about it and the time you actually asked me the question during recording. But, I mean, because I've done a lot of cosplay and it tends to be things that are easier to do mm-hmm. because... As much as I love sewing and I love costume design, I'm not actually fantastic at execution. Uh, so all of those I would love to redo in a better format. And and lately when I've cosplayed, it's been very closet cosplay. Things like street clothes Black Widow or mm-hmm. Mary Jane on a business day or, you know, stuff that doesn't require specific pieces that are not normally viable at a store. Yeah, the last cosplay I did was Kabuki Mask from Big Hero 6 the bad guy from big hero six. Um, I did that. I had a 3d, a custom 3d printed mask for that, that, uh, that I painted up and put reflective lenses inside and everything. So it was, uh, it's probably the most involved one I did. And that one was 95% of that was off the rack pieces that I just Mm -hmm. altered slightly, uh, because, 
Uh, if you've seen Big Hero 6, you've seen that Kabuki Mask wears a bunch of layers and Dragon Con happens in mm-hmm. August in Georgia. So, yeah. But it looked good. I got to see it. It looked really good. Thank you. Well, I, I hope that we can once again indulge in some cosplay and plus just really enjoy the incredible work that the cosplay community puts into their pieces. It's constantly the highlight of Dragon Con for me is just seeing mm-hmm. the creative uh, costuming everything from incredibly accurate replicas of pieces you've seen in film or television or even comic books up to the crazy, you know, mashups and offshoots that come up uh, a lot of, I think a lot of the spirit of large Nerdron collider is in those kinds of cosplay. It definitely is. I wonder when we get back to conventions with cosplay dragon con specifically since that's the one right right outside our door if we're gonna get many knives out cosplays yeah that's an excellent question because i mean that's the thing is that one of the interesting bits about cosplay is that we've seen it branch far beyond the fantasy and science fiction and superheroes and horror it started to go all over the place in in all the areas where people have you know a deep fandom for the thing And the reason you bring out Knives Out is because we've heard about yet another uh, addition to the cast. We talked about Batista being part of the cast. Mm -hmm. Now we know that Leslie Odom Jr. is going to be part of the cast. He played, uh, well, he's been in lots of stuff, but I think of him as Aaron Burr from Hamilton, uh, where he was phenomenal originating that role. I'm going to say if he's the killer, then that's typecasting and not fair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe he accidentally shoots the, the victim or something. Uh, but yeah, we also know that Edward Norton is in the cast, as is Catherine Hahn. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. It could have been Catherine Hahn. Yeah, I think it might be Catherine that's Hahn because it was Agatha all along. Uh, so really what you're saying is you expect Knives Out 2 to be Aaron Burr, the Hulk, <laughs> Uh, Agatha from, (laughs) from WandaVision and James Bond and and James Bond, Daniel Craig, (laughs) all in a room together. Yes. No, I'm just, I'm just, and Drax and I'm trying to figure out which Janelle Monae character I want to select for this. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not going to be individual characters. It's going to be all the other characters they've played. Yes, exactly. Uh, Also, it'll turn out to be kind of like Clue, where everyone ends up being a killer. Oh, spoiler for Clue, in case you haven't seen that movie. (laughs) Jonathan, (laughs) it. came out in the early 80s. I think think the statute of limitations is done. I've watched it like a thousand times, but I was going to say that you're making me redo my evening plans, but that's not true at all. Well, and I, I have to say, uh, I'm really excited about Knives Out 2. Uh, I, I very much enjoyed the the first film. I was late to seeing the first movie. I, I knew that it was there was a huge amount of buzz around it already by the time I saw it. Uh, so I didn't I was not on that that first like boat of folks who saw it. Uh, I was so mm-hmm. lucky that no one spoiled it for me. So I got to go into it and enjoy the mystery for what it was. Uh, although I maintain that if you do watch Knives Out, if you haven't seen it before, I maintain that I'm I'm pretty sure most people are going to suss out who the killer is pretty pretty yeah. early on. But it was still a very entertaining film. Yes, and and from a storytelling standpoint and an artistic standpoint, there are so many little clues and hints that they put in throughout that's just really fantastic. Uh, Jonathan, I'm actually going to be a bit of a butt, and I'm going to change our show order after we decided it, because I realized that if we're talking about Knives Out, which is a murder mystery, we should then talk about our other uh, true crime murder story next. Dear Evan Hansen, got it. No. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, you did. That's what we were supposed to talk about <laughs> next. No, okay, right. So you're you're talking about the the Steve Martin and Martin Short series that is coming out on Hulu. Yes, it's called Only Murders in the Building, which took me a bit because that's not really a a name that like rolls off the tongue or makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, but it's Steve Martin, Martin Short, Amy Ryan, and Selena Gomez, and they are true crime podcast fans who then decide to solve true crime. Yes, a murder, or at least a death, happens in the apartment building where they all live. They're all strangers to one another, except for the fact that they all happen to share this love of true crime podcasts. And a death happens in their building, and collectively they decide 
that they want to investigate it because they all suspect that the death was, in fact, a murder. Um, and they want to put the the skills they have learned by listening to true crime podcasts to the test. Ariel, I got to tell you, this to me is kind of my nightmare. I thought it might be. Uh, just just because I, I know that you have feels on true crime podcasts. I do. I'm a, I'm a podcast producer who works for a company that produces more than a few true crime podcasts. And the thought of fans taking it upon themselves to try and solve crime because of their perceived expertise, because they listen to a lot of true crime shows, fills me with a terror that is difficult to put into words. I mean, I totally get it. That being said, the trailer is so adorable. Like, so Steve, Steve Martin and Martin Short, oftentimes I, they're both comedic, comedically brilliant yes. in many ways. But uh, a lot of times, especially like when they rehash old characters on SNL or whatnot, they're so over the top mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. They're just very, very large. And so I was worried that watching this trailer, they would both be very, very large. Um, and they're, they're big, but they're not unbearably big. And then you've got Selena Gomez coming in as just this straight man, like very wry sort of personality that balanced it out really well in in the trailer. I didn't expect to, I had to watch the trailer, but I didn't expect to want to watch the show. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, like, you know, when I think of Steve Martin and Martin short together, my thoughts immediately go to the three amigos. Um, mm-hmm. but which is great. It's fantastic. But- I love it. But yeah, as you say, like the performances in that film are not at all subtle. They're not supposed to be. That's not the kind of movie it is. Uh, we, by the way, fun fact, if you go back through our old YouTube videos, there's one of our YouTube videos where we heavily reference the three amigos when we talk about the seven sons of the seven samurai. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like I'm the same way. I, I wasn't sure what to expect, but everyone like Steve Martin, especially in the past few years, has turned in some performances that are much more nuanced and subtle. Mm-hmm. Like he's not the wild and crazy guy of the seventies or the zany comedy guy of the eighties. Uh, he still has that incredible sense of humor, but it it's channeled in a, a different way now. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely say that he's the more mild of the two uh, Martins. Yes. <laughs> the Steve Martin short. Yes, Steve Martin Short. Martin Steve Martin Short. Okay, so speaking of nuanced performances. Yeah, this is going to be a fun conversation we're about to get into here. Um, yeah. yeah, we wanted to, so we do do want to talk about Dear Evan Hansen because the trailer for the movie adaptation of the Broadway show launched the day we're recording this, which is May 18th, 2021. And um, mm-hmm. it surprised me because... I, despite the fact that I I'm on a show where we cover entertainment news, I wasn't aware that there was a musical version of this coming out. Like I had heard that it was happening, but it completely fell off my radar because it was just the beginning stages last I, I personally picked up on it. Well, it it surprised me also that, you know, they actually cast the actor who played the character of Evan Hansen in the, the Broadway stage show as that character in the film, which uh, on one hand is a neat thing because you very rarely see that, right? We usually see mm-hmm. Hollywood actors who end up getting cast in these roles. And maybe if you're lucky, they can sing. You can sing. Yeah. yeah. But in this case, we're seeing the actual person who originated the part on Broadway doing the role uh, on the screen. That doesn't always work out. Rent was a disaster. <laughs> But um, mm-hmm. but we're hopeful on this one. However, it does bring up an issue that the internet has more than jumped all over. <laughs> yeah, which is the fact that Ben Platt is 27, which you know is not always an issue in Hollywood. There are constantly people being ca- in their 30s being cast as teenagers. Yeah, and we should point out Evan Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen is a is a story that's set in like mostly in a high school with mm-hmm. uh, the main character feeling like an outcast at that high school. And he has a couple of encounters with a, a similar outcast in that school. And it appears that the two of them from the outside, like people who are just casually looking, it looks like the two of them formed a friendship. Then this other person, Connor, uh, takes his own life. 
And that appearance of a friendship becomes uh, kind of a lie that people just start to believe. And Evan is sort of wrapped up in it. Um, The story gets much more complicated from there. But the point being that you've got an actor in his late 20s playing a teenager. And a lot of people started sharing memes, uh, especially of the the Steve Buscemi, uh, like, you know, What's up, young people, fellow young people, that kind of meme uh, as mm-hmm. a joke about being Evan Hansen. All of the kids are in their 20s. So uh, Alana Beck, Zoe Murphy, Connor Murphy, Jared Klein, they're all in their 20s, between 22 and 26. So Ben Platt playing Evan Hansen is not so far off, but he looks way older than them. He does. And so I feel weird about this, Ariel. And the reason why is because every film depends upon a suspension of disbelief, right? You have to mm-hmm. suspend disbelief because you know, this is a movie. People showed up to set. There was catering. There were lights. There were crew that are not in view. If the movie's done properly, <laughs> like, I like, like, you know, it's all artifice. So you already have to buy into it. Now it is asking you more to buy into it when an actor is the wrong age to play a character, quote unquote, wrong age. It's a little mm-hmm. easier. I would argue, uh, when you go to see a stage production, because then you're having to suspend your disbelief even more because you can just look around and see that, you know, yeah. you're not really, you know, wherever. Um, but I also like, I, I get it where like, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling a disconnect between the, uh, the appearance of an actor and the, supposed age of the character they're playing. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of shows out there that have adults playing children. And that's part of the show. Like, like the uh, 25th annual Putnam County spelling bee is that way. You're a good man. Charlie Brown is that way. So uh, I guess it just depends on intent and uh, the way it's portrayed, but I'm not feeling a mental block here, I guess is what I'm saying. Me neither. So, like, if you look at the movie Eighth Grade, where they used actual eighth graders, if they had used high schoolers and then put Ben Platt into that environment, yeah, I would have felt real creepy about that. But because they've cast everyone older, you know, you can kind of just age up in your brain. I know that as I get older, and I'm not old by any means, but as I get older, all of a sudden, people my age look younger to me. So, well, and and I think about things like you know. Like you said, it's not a new thing to cast adults as mm-hmm. teenagers. Like the television series Buffy the Vampire Slayer, every single one of the the principal actors were playing characters several years younger than themselves, sometimes like a decade younger than themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's not an unusual thing. Um, I do get like the initial knee-jerk reaction. It's not a big deal to me. I can get past yeah. it. Um, also like, I think part of it's also that I kind of wanted to see dear Evan Hansen when it was originally running on Broadway, but it's one of those things Mm -hmm. where like, it's tough to see a show with its original cast. I mean, there's, it's just, it's an exclusive thing, right? So this Mm -hmm. is a chance to see the, the guy who originated the part do it again. And when else am I going to get a chance to see that? I agree. You know, I think I I was going to say they could have done it because you run into work issues, like how much time a kid can be on set if they're under 18. But I really think they did it so that people could see Ben Platt as Evan Hansen, which, you know, when I listen to the soundtrack, that's who I love singing it. So I'm also quite excited. I'm, I'm not having any hangups. He does look a little old to me, but I can No, I, I I agree. I agree. Well, you know what, Ariel, I think what we should do is take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about some interesting mergers that are coming up and then segue into some, uh, situational comedic conversation. Okay, Ariel, so there are a couple of stories here that get into the realm of one of the other shows we used to do, Business on the Brink, where we would talk about like some big, big, big moments in business history that either led to incredible success or monumental failure. And we've got a couple of stories that could be like a turning point. Um, And one of them is that Amazon is rumored to be on the prowl to pick up MGM, the one of the oldest movie production companies ever, which has had numerous 
financial difficulties throughout its very long history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which, uh, you know, I get it. The, the interesting thing to me is along with MGM comes things like getting the movie Fargo. But the Fargo television show is on Hulu, which is owned by Disney. So, yeah. but they get like the James it, Bond series. That's got to be worth something. Hobbit, Rocky, Robocop. I'm just reading through the list here. Get Shorty, which is probably not a show, a movie that like half our audience has ever seen. But it's, yeah, I saw it in the theater. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um because as these big mergers happen, they kind of start overlapping in my brain. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like I, so it feels a bit incestuous and I get, I have a hard time keeping them all straight. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, merge. Cause I already have Amazon Prime. So that'll just open up my uh, options for streaming. When I think of MGM, Ariel, the two things that come to my mind are the original name for Disney Hollywood Studios, Mm -hmm. Disney's MGM Studios. Yes, which I still call it that. So So do I, Uh, which I'm sure irritates cast members like crazy. But, you know, that it it was burned into my brain as a kid. But the other thing is uh, one of the greatest movies of all time. And I'm not this isn't me being like flippant, but Wizard of Oz was an MGM film like that is that is truly an iconic movie. So it, it, it's interesting. Like, I think I look at MGM as a business and I think, yeah, that that's a company that's really, that's really struggling. I mean, we would call it a business on the brink and, um, mm-hmm. and, and it's only companies like massive companies like Amazon that would be able to come in and potentially scoop up those assets and maybe make something out of it. You know, you wouldn't expect Amazon to just, you know, liquidate everything. They would do something with it. What they would do with it is uh, another question. But you alluded to the fact that it's hard to keep these things straight. It's not getting any easier because this is not the only merger story we have. No, uh, WarnerMedia is uh, apparently being sold by AT&T and getting picked up by Discovery, which hurts my head a little bit. Me too. I used to work for Discovery, so it hurts my head too. Um, Yeah, so AT&T is looking to spin off Warner Media and have it merge with Discovery, which is all sorts of strange to me. I mean, in some ways, I think it's a good thing because AT&T is, you know, a telecommunications company. So they're in charge of making sure the connections exist between different entities. And then Warner Media is a content company. And I don't really like it when content and delivery are merged together. It's why I really don't care for the uh, the Comcast NBC Universal massive conglomerate. Yeah. I find because that that's the kind of stuff that ends up threatening things like net neutrality. So I'm not a big mm-hmm. fan of it. But yeah, so the part about them spinning off Warner Media in order to focus solely on telecommunications and have Warner Media focus solely on content, that part was easy for me to understand. It's the merger with Discovery that I also find like that's the one where I had the big question mark pop up over my head. I, you know, I wonder if Discovery was was on board to get it because like, so they've got Discovery Plus, right? And a lot of their content is now on there. A lot of the shows that people like to watch, you know, like Dr. Pimple Popper or uh, Fixer Upper, things like that. A lot of those shows are now on Discovery Plus because they want people buying their their streaming service. But there are just too many of them. So I wonder if that's a way for them to still maintain a sh- streaming service not admit defeat because I, I don't know what their numbers are, you know? Um, yeah, neither and, do I, but then roll it in under like HBO max, HBO max. Cause which is also hard because I get my HBO max through Hulu, which is owned by Disney. <sighs> yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> I thought the cable business was a confusing mishmash, but it was, you know, streamlined and simple compared to the online streaming world that we're in today. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's also, it blows my mind to think that if things had been a little different, uh, I could count Batman as my coworker. That, that is a pretty cool thought, John, but I haven't worked for discovery for a few years now. Discovery spun off how stuff works several years ago, or actually sold off how stuff works several years ago. 
uh, which then mm-hmm. went through a whole series of things. And I don't even work for how stuff works anymore. No, nope. been in the same job for 14 years. It's the bosses that keep changing. <laughs> yep. But you, you are, I remain are a constant. Yeah. Uh, like steadfast a thorn pillar. in the side. Yes. But steadfast pillar. <laughs> speaking of pillars, one of the pillars of comedy one of the pillars of entertainment. <laughs> Such an odd segment. Listen, I, I'm I'm grasping at any straw that I can see. But one of the pillars of, of entertainment, particularly in places like the UK and America, is the sitcom or situational comedy. Now, Ariel, uh, what was it that, that made you want to talk about sitcoms today? Uh, yeah, so uh, sadly, it looks like we won't have much time to talk about it, so this conversation might lead in to another week but uh, ABC released trailers for a bunch of its fall lineup and there was there was a drama called Queens and then three sitcoms one of which we knew about uh, The Wonder Years which is a remake and it's starring Dulé Hill which I love Dulé Hill so I'll watch anything he's in um, and then Abbott Elementary which is about a school and then Maggie which is a comedy about a psychic and you know, I, I pulled up the article to watch the trailer about Wonder Years because I loved the original and I'm very excited about this remake. I love I love how certain certain comedies, certain situational things are and, and sometimes hate too, uh, are are a part of the basic human condition. So no matter when you look at them throughout your history, they, they remain relevant. You know, mm-hmm. there are some some things that remain relevant that I wish wouldn't. Uh, for instance, when they redid All in the Family and Jeffersons, there are certain uh, social topics that I wish were not still relevant that sadly are. But, you know, a lot of comedy, a lot of family, those, the the particulars might change, but the overall feeling of them stays the same. And so you can make remake something like Wonder Years have it be new and have it still hit all of the same old feels, which is what I'm hoping for. There are certain sitcoms and certain shows that I think fall into the comedy range. They maybe don't fall into the classic sitcom uh, category. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't think wonder years falls into sitcom, but it is more comedic than anything else. It's more of a kind of a dramedy series in a way. Um, It's situational. But like, like Doogie Howser is another one. That's Mm -hmm. another one that has the remake. Right. So, uh, Full House. Yeah, no, Full House is like, we're going to have so much more to talk about with Full House in a minute. It had a sequel. It had a sequel. Yeah. Full, it's not really. Fuller really. House. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, there are other there are other like sitcoms I think of from my childhood. Now, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So a lot of the sitcoms I remember are not good. Uh, some of them are like Golden Girls. Pretty good sitcom. Uh, Designing Women was frequently a pretty good sitcom. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are others that, you know, were varying degrees of corny or just, uh, you know, not not particularly relevant. Like, I don't know. Perfect Strangers. Not not so much. Ah, Um, I love Perfect. I did at the time, but I have things to say about that that I'll tell you off mic. Um, yes. Well, I did rewatch it recently. It doesn't quite hold up as yeah. well. As or or like, here's a, here's an example of one that totally like would not fly today for good reason. Bosom buddies. Yes. That, that would not fly. So if you don't know what bosom buddies is, it was a, a Tom Hanks was in it. It was a, a, a comedy in which a couple of guys dressed in drag in order to be able to live in a, um, uh, a housing area w- that only would allow women. And um, yeah, so you had a lot of jokes about men dressed up as women and that just would not like that. That mm-hmm. humor doesn't work today at all. Um, I arguably it didn't work so great then either, but you know, you get by a, a long way on Tom Hanks's charm. Um, That's true. But yeah, it's interesting. So uh, are there any are there any sitcoms that you can think of that you would love to see a reboot of that you think could? I mean, we know we're getting some like Punky Brewster. That's another one that's coming yeah. back. But see the the reboot of Punky Brewster again. It's not a reboot. It's a sequel. Um, it feels like it's banking heavily on nostalgia, which is not always a bad thing. But um, it felt it felt a little too forced for me. You know, I I, I talked about this in a previous episode but i i would love to see family matters reboot mm. 
Um, I don't know if they could. Like, I don't know if anybody could replace Ju- Julia White as Steve Urkel. And now that geek is being a geek is so much more mainstream, I don't know how it would play. Um, but I'd be interested to see it. Um, you know, Perfect Strangers, although I, I can guarantee that's probably because I haven't <laughs> watched most of it in a long time. Um, it, but, that one's tricky because so much of the humor is all about fish out of water and the, the exaggeration of foreignness mm-hmm. makes it yeah. hard to do in a way that doesn't feel like it's playing upon almost racist stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, I've been re I, I've been watching through blackish, which actually just, uh, it got announced. It's going to be in its final season. I'm not sure if it's already in or if it's going to be. Uh, but they did a a take on good times mm. in one of their episodes. Uh, and so I feel like I feel like sometimes you can reboot a concept without having to do an exact reboot of a show. Mm-hmm. I think Blackish is a great example. I really enjoy that. Um, you know, Abbott Elementary. I'm sure there have been other sitcoms about elementary schools that that it's a reboot of maybe like saved by the bell, although it's more focused on teachers, but but I'll um, tell you which one, what classic sitcom from my childhood. I want to see rebooted. Sure. Yeah, I bet you can tell already. This is going to be a flippant answer. Okay. Silver spoons. I know I've seen it, but I don't remember. Here we are about face it. to face. Couple of silver spoons hoping to find we're two of a kind making a go making it grow together. We're going to find a way. Um, yeah, no. So silver spoons had, had Rick, then Ricky Schroeder, uh, as a, a very serious young man coming to live with his father, who is essentially a man child, uh, who's extremely wealthy. And it's kind of like the story of the father who is, largely irresponsible and, and living in a a state of arrested development, bringing the child out of his son and his son kind of encouraging the dad to be more, um, you know, responsible and mature. But that's like from a very high level on an episode by episode basis, it was just an excuse for goofy things to happen by wealthy people. Okay. I mean, that, but can you imagine, like, let's say, let's say like the dad is obsessed with, um, Instagram, like he's obsessed with mm-hmm. being an Instagram influencer and the kid is like a much more kind of focused kind of person. Like you could, you could easily update that concept to today and it would still work. Isn't it kind of like young Sheldon at that point? I've never watched young Sheldon, so it's very possible. <laughs> uh, so I've got it. I've got the perfect sitcom to reboot what's that i knew you were gonna say alf i knew you're gonna (laughs) say alf oh i mean just think about like it was funny it was a little irreverent which we we know you like because you like always sunny in philadelphia i don't i sometimes do um you know but it could be done on such a higher level now i think what you do is you do a new version of alf same puppet so you don't update the puppet at all Mm -hmm. and in this version of alf Everyone else in the family is aware that Alf is a puppet and can see the puppeteer, but they, they're scared for their lives of the puppeteer. And so they humor the puppeteer and treat Alf as if it, he is, in fact, an alien named Gordon I, Shumway. I want to watch that so very much. Well, you know, I'm all about taking things from our past and turning them dark which is a great way for us to tease what's going to happen after we come back from the break with our mashup. (laughs) Okay, Ariel, uh, let's talk for a second now that we're back. Let's talk for a second about monsters at work, because that serves as one of the two inspirational points for our mashup today. Yeah. So the first inspirational point is Full House um, or Fuller House in Jonathan's case. 
uh, because we are inspired by sitcoms. But there was also news that Disney Plus is making a Monsters at Work TV show that is a sequel to Monsters, Inc. And I guess... By that account, Monsters University, Monsters U. Well, that's that's I a never that's a prequel. That that's a prequel. Uh, okay. It's fantastic, so. by the way. I mean, it's it's unnecessary. It's totally unnecessary. It's a prequel that doesn't need to exist, but it is it is legitimately entertaining and adorable. Mm-hmm. Well, so is Monsters Inc., and so I therefore think that Monsters at Work will also be adorable. Yeah. Uh, but you know, when I was looking at, I'm like, okay, sitcoms. Full House just is 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 ripe for a mashup. mashup. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know why. It's just like it, there was no question in my mind that we needed to mash it up with Monsters, Inc. Unfortunately, I think both of our mashups got a little bit more adult than maybe initially anticipated going into it. Yeah. And by adult, you mean dark and or disturbing and or bleak. I mean, mine's not super dark or disturbing. It has a moment, but so does Full House. Yeah. Like both Full House and Fuller House start on a sad note and then get happy. So that's where mine is. Since yours is apparently soul-crushingly depressing, I'm going to let you go first this time. Okay. All right. Well, um, so yes, I did set mine in the world of Fuller House. So for those who are not, you know, haven't ever watched it, first of all, Thank your lucky stars. Uh, But it is a sequel to (laughs) Full House in which the character of DJ Tanner, one of the daughters of the the in the original uh, Full House season. She's a grown woman. She's uh, as the the series opens. She has recently lost her husband. She has three kids. Her younger sister, Stephanie, comes to live with her, as does her childhood friend, Kimmy Gibbler. And they all are working together to try and, you know, look after the kids and just make it in a world that's tough and, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, mine is set in the world of Fuller house, uh, and the world of monsters Inc. So here we go. DJ Tanner has a problem. She's a widow and mother with three children who now also has her younger sister, Stephanie living in her house. And there's Kimmy Gibbler who for reasons I'm only vaguely aware of has also moved into the Tanner family home with her own daughter. Anyway, the real problem DJ has isn't with all of this. It's that there's a monster under her bed. Not that DJ knows this though, but the monster is lurking quietly, just hiding there. Because as it turns out, the Tanner home is the secret to Monstropolis's energy crisis. Cut to title, Fuller Monsters. Flashback, Monstropolis. Oh no. The city has grown exponentially since the events of Monsters, Inc., becoming a mega metropolis that covers most of the monster world. Buildings more than a hundred stories tall tower in the incredibly dense, packed urban area, though occasionally huge monsters do give the buildings a run for their money. And the monsters on the laugh floor at the Monsters, Inc. factory are close to burning out, even with the incredible juice supplied by laughter, which is orders of magnitude greater than screams, they are running dangerously close to not meeting the energy needs of the growing city. The monster world is on the precipice of a true crisis. That is until Mike Wazowski, already a legend, tries a door that hasn't ever been opened. That door leads to the Tanner home in San Francisco. It was always there, ready to be used, but for whatever reason, simply was never picked. Wazowski goes through a process of trying lots of doors in quick succession, trying to find a solution to his growing problem. Just as he's about to give up, he sneaks into the Tanner home. And Wazowski slips under DJ's bed on a reconnaissance mission, and there he discovers something phenomenal. Laughter. An endless supply of laughter, not from the Tanner family or their surrounding sphere of weirdo friends. No, it's from some other source, some source that the Tanners seem unaware of. But Wazowski hears it loud and clear whenever anyone says anything, even if it doesn't remotely resemble a joke, there's laughter. Lots of it. 
Wazowski can collect enough power in half an hour to power all of Monstropolis for a week. And so Wazowski makes his way into the Tanner home on a regular basis. He doesn't even have to do anything at all. Sometimes a guy will just say, have mercy in a way that, you know, you can tell it's a reference to something, but there's not really any oomph behind it anymore. But for some reason, the unseen audience laughs at it or Stephanie will say, how rude and boom, laughter or heck, DJ will say, oh, my Lanta, there's a ridiculous amount of laughter. Monstropolis's energy problems are solved. But there's a cost. Day after day, Wazowski sits under that bed, doing nothing but just being there to help harvest the energy from the studio audience laughter. He becomes despondent. He, the great Mike Wazowski, the monster known for doing anything for the sake of a laugh, the master of gags and jokes, he was being overshadowed by meaningless quotes and the occasional terrible musical number. He had put so much work into his craft, creating a real approach to comedy that would elicit laughter. But here was this weird family and even weirder friends who were making it all happen without even trying. Heck, it looked like no one was even willing to try. And why would they? There was no need to try. The laughs would come even without the effort. Day after day, Wazowski slips further into a deep depression, even as he is surrounded by laughter. At home, people treat him as a hero. Monstropolis continues to grow unabated. It gets larger and more dense and more hungry for energy, and Wazowski supplies it. But every day... Another little part of him dies inside. Every day, he hides under that bed, not even paying attention to what's going on in the house anymore. The laughs come one way or another, and nothing Wazowski does has any effect on it. He's just there to channel the energy back home. Slipping deeper into depression and ennui, the world appears to be black and white for Mike Wazowski. Laughter has lost all all meaning. There's no difference between a joke and a reference. There's no difference between a reference and just a random line of dialogue between two people. It all brings in the same almost robotic laughter. Flash forward 10 years. Monstropolis is a nightmare city. You can't even see the sun. The buildings stretch up so high and block out the light. The streets are lit with garish neon and bright incandescent bulbs. Loud music spills out from buildings onto the streets. Monsters are all on their phones and computers and other energy-hungry devices. There's a new craze in the monster world, cryptozoology currency, which Wazowski doesn't really understand, but he does know it requires a huge amount of energy to work. Wazowski himself is a shell of who he once was. His colleagues have all retired. Why work at the Monster Inc. factory anyway? Wazowski is collecting more energy than anyone needs. Wazowski's own fame has faded from the minds of the monsters. He's taken for granted. In the backs of their minds, the monsters know that without Wazowski's work, they wouldn't have their energy, but it's just a given now. Wazowski, now a sickly shade of his once vibrant green, puts his hand on the doorknob to the Tanner home. He closes his one eye in despair. A single tear runs down the left side of his eye. He pauses for a moment, staring at his hand on that doorknob. We see a close-up of that hand. It begins to move, but is it turning the knob or letting go? We don't know. The screen goes black, and we cut to the credit, directed by Lars von Trier. The end. Wow. Told you it was, told you it was bleak. <laughs> it is bleak, um, and oddly, a lot closer to my mashup than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> It. Okay, so I might have I, I might have um, put an awful lot of commentary on my opinions about Fuller House in that. I mean, 
I was going to say salty much, but then you brought it back from your rant into uh, a, a sad, depressing drama series. <laughs> um, but um, I'm going to glass half full, your glass half empty. So okay. this is called Uncle Sully and the Screamers. It's 2030 and Mary Gibbs, formerly known as Boo, is moving back to her childhood home. Her husband has perished in a car fire because, heaven forbid, Disney have more than one alive parent. And she is struggling to take care of her three children, Donna Boo, i.e. D.B., Sullivan, and Michaela. And she is also struggling to hold on to her job as a TV producer and pay her mortgage at the same time. Meanwhile, Mike and Sully are hard at work on the laughing floor of Monstropolis. It's been harder and harder to generate enough laughs to power Monstropolis over the years as children have become more cynical. And Mike and Sully are getting worn out trying to meet the demand. Over lunch one day, they are reminiscing of when they first discovered the power of laughter, how easy it all seemed back then and how much they missed Boo. As they cleaned up their lunch trays, they got a warning light and rushed back to their office to see what was going on. The warning light was attached to Boo's door, but that door hadn't been active for years. They quickly rushed to the door and turned on a monitor to check out what was happening on the other side, just to see a sad, stressed out adult Boo. Mike immediately insists that they should go visit her. They were just talking about her, so it must be a sign. Sully, however, is hesitant, afraid that as an adult, she won't remember or believe in them and that would break his heart. However, Mike, through some Looney Tune level rabbit season, duck season antics, gets Sully to go through the door. And when they get to the other side, not only does Boo recognize them, but so do her children. It turns out she told her kids stories about the monstrous duo and the reunion is happy. The kids love, love Mike and Sully. And with their help, Mary is able to catch up on some much needed chores and work. And for a week, everyone is blissfully happy. Hijinks ensue and for a time, the three forget their worries enveloped in love and laughter. But at the end of a wonderful week of Sully yelling, watch the hair and Mike saying, cut it out to the kids. The two monsters realize that they need to return home. Monstropolis is counting on them. The kids all say a tearful farewell and Mike and Sully go back through Boo's door. However, when they get to the other side, they find out that they had forgotten to turn off the monitor to Boo's house. And while they were away, the feed was so hilarious and popular that it caught syndication and was broadcast to monsters and people all over the world. It had become a hit and so many people were laughing that it was powering the whole town 100 times over. Mike and Sully rushed back to tell Mary the news and decided to move in with her. That way, Monstropolis would get its power, Mary would get her help, and the HodgePodge family would ha live happily ever after. Oh yeah, once they move in, Mike starts a spinoff show called Ranger Mike, where he has a puppet sidekick spider thing. Let's call it a spider, called Mr. Waternoose. And Sully enacts his lifelong dream of being a rockabilly singer with a great hair and starts the band Sully and the Screamers. Very, very cute. I'm glad that yours didn't go to Lars von Trier territory. <laughs> no, no. I debated, by the way, I debated when I got to the end of mine, whether the director of my piece was going to be Lars von Trier or Werner Herzog and uh, Lars von Trier won out. <laughs> Either way, I feel like uh, there is a kind of an existential dread in mine. So. Yeah, yeah. This was this was weird, Ariel, because, you know, obviously, like the two properties that we picked, uh, neither of which are are dark or like, you know, Monsters, Inc. has some mm -hmm. moments that might be a Can little be scary. yeah, a little scary for like the whole premise is that the monsters are trying to scare kids. Right. But but they're not mm -hmm. dark. They're they're very fun, uplifting kind of things. I mean. Mileage may vary for Fuller House, but it is interesting that we both kind of took it to that place. I think that just tells us that when we do these creative endeavors where we try to tweak something that uh, we're familiar with, we don't want to just repeat the stuff that's there or, you know, mm -hmm. or, or just crank up the dial a couple of notches to, in, you know, intensify whatever was there. We want to transform it. And I think we did that today. Yeah. I think we did some good work. I think so too. I also think that when you take two comedic enterprises and you smush them together, uh, it brings out the genuine heartfeltness or sadness. Yeah, no, there was it, there was a deep, deep. The comedy cancels. It cancels each other out yeah. and all you've got left is the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even have Sully in mind. I couldn't I I couldn't think of a way of incorporating Sully where I 
wouldn't do something equally terrible to him. So I thought, let's just limit this, mm-hmm. shall we? Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Well, that was that was fun for a given definition of fun <laughs> for for mine anyway. Uh, so we look forward to doing a lot more of these. We are curious if any of you out there have your own mashups of these properties that you would mm-hmm. like to propose, or if you have any suggestions for mashups we should do in the future or things like just conversational, you know, talking points you would like us to, yeah. to go over. Or if you, you know, have cosplays you want Jonathan us and, and I to do, if we ever go back to a convention. Or if you guys do any cool cosplays and you want to share them with us, we would love yes. to see them. Uh, so there are a lot, yes, of, a lot of different ways to get in touch with us. So if you want to show us your cosplays or some of your favorites, um, reach out to us. So you can do so on email. We are LNC at iheartmedia.com or you can drop us a tweet over on the Twitters. We are LNC underscore podcast there. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram where we are Large Nerdron Collider. Yes, and you know, as always, if you like us, make sure you subscribe, tell your friends, get them to subscribe. As Jonathan would say, uh, tell your enemies if you don't like us, but tell them you like us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And make sure yeah, you make just, sure you, you know, leave reviews, that kind of thing. All those sort of things help us out. And we greatly appreciate it. Uh, we, you know, the, the best thing about fandom is that it is a collective, right? It's not, it, yeah. there's nothing fun about just spouting off of what you love to like no one. It's about, it's that, that energy that feeds on itself when you get fans together in a place. Yes. Oh, and our website is up to date uh, for anybody who is checking that for show notes. It was out of date for a few weeks. I did a job change, but now it's up to date and it'll stay up to date. Uh, I'll also post a link to our Three Amigos, Seven Sons of Seven Samurai video for anybody who has interest once this episode goes live. Yes. And that website is largenerdroncollider.com. And until next time, she has been Ariel Boo to you, Kasten. And... <laughs> He has been Jonathan Wyzowski Strickland. The Large Nerdron Collider is a production of iHeartRadio and was created by Ariel Kasten. Jonathan Strickland is the executive producer. The show is produced, edited, and published by Tari Harrison. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.